It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Hello, everyone. This is Carl Shineman, president and founder of Review Less, and welcome to another edition of ESI Bites. We're Judge John Facciola, retired U.S. Magistrate Judge for the United States District Court for the District of Columbia, and I will attempt to offer information, insights, and information about e-discovery innovation from national speakers on electronic discovery at a price everyone can afford, which is free and available when they're interested in listening to it or just hitting play on your iPod, iPad, or whatever device you're listening to it on. Today we have a, a real interesting show as we take on the premise which a small number of well-intentioned e-discovery experts have struggled with. How do we create more lawyers who are competent in, in e-discovery? What can we do to spur innovation in e-discovery? Do we need to educate? Do the leaders need to mentor more lawyers? Or do we just wait for innovation to happen? E-discovery is often by far the most expensive component of litigation. In addition, the pace of change is palpable when you look at the inner workings of the majority of e-discovery projects. If I can use an analogy, it's like eating airport food. The quality is fairly hit or miss, and more often than not, airs on you know, being not the best meal you've ever had because the customer isn't really a frequent dining customer. So. If you follow that analogy and you accept the premise that the quality of e-discovery services are a mixed bag and very expensive, then what should we do about improving e-discovery quality and making efforts to innovate and improve process? Whereas the better answer, we should just accept it and wait for improvement, which, which actually does happen over time. This show explores these issues and what should be a lively discussion between three guests with varied backgrounds. Our participants in the show are Judge Facciola, who is well-known in the field for his thought-provoking opinions and speaking he's done nationally on, on this topic. Judge Facciolo has been a mentor for many in the field of e-discovery, including myself, and he's very active in e-discovery education at Georgetown University, the Sedona Conference, and many other educational groups. As a judge who has personally touched so many of the e-discovery experts in the country, as well as new uh, lawyers and law students, He's a great addition to this discussion because he has a practical perspective and is one of the recognized deans of the e-discovery education community. Our uh, guest, Peter McCann, was a practicing attorney for 10 years before moving on to E3 Discovery Consultants, his e-discovery company. He's also an adjunct professor at Wilmington University and Drexel Law, where he teaches e-discovery-related courses. In his spare time, he's been working on creating materials to help educate law students on e-discovery, as both a consultant working with legal organizations and a teacher with law students, Peter brings a unique perspective to this dialogue, also as a former lawyer, an optimist, and as a teacher. I'm going to be an active participant in this show, so let me highlight uh, my background. In addition to hosting ESI Bytes, I've been a practicing attorney for 20 years, much of it in e-discovery, and also owned or started seven companies several uh, which have been on the Inc. 5000 list, which is a national growth ranking, a total of eight times. In e-discovery, my businesses have been at the forefront or pioneered large, um, s several you know, newer areas in e-discovery, such as 
um, large-scale Midwest sourcing for document review. Work in uh, 2002, which was in 2002 and 2007. Sorry about that. Um, uh, didn't turn off the cell phone. Uh, also, uh, the use of uh, predictive coding with the first contested use of TAR in global aerospace. Uh, you know, use, being the first special master in federal bankruptcy court where we used uh, visual clustering for the first time. And uh, now, most recently, for the past two years, been pooling of highly experienced remote document review attorneys who operate around the country as remote teams doing review. Uh, these were all first-to-market offerings, so you know I've been in that position of having to convince lawyers on maybe why tweaking or changing the model might make sense. So I see my role in the debate as maybe a view of reality of what happens in the e-discovery marketplace when a new idea hits it. So let's start the show. Um, first of all, uh, on the topic of education, Peter, is the focus on e-discovery education and its shortcomings and overreaction by the e-discovery community. Uh, I mean, do we really need to teach lawyers about technology or do we have enough default mechanisms to make the process simple, such as agree on keywords, run the search, and then print the documents that you're going to review? Carl, first of all, great to be here. I've been a grateful admirer from afar of both what you and Judge Facciola have done to alert the community of the changes that are underway in our world. The legal technology revolution is coming. Uh, the legal community owes a debt of gratitude to the two of you and others like Craig Ball and Ralph Lozzi for taking on the part of Paul Revere and letting us know that the technology is coming. So thank you. Uh, as to your question on whether lawyers should become educated experts on e-discovery or rely on the tools, experts, or vendors, you should realize that I believe the technology is going to fundamentally disrupt how the law is practiced in the next 10 to 20 years. So in the grant scheme, you know, whether lawyers should become educated or rely on the vendors is, is a debate uh, akin to how the Titanic chair should be organized from my perspective. But I also understand that lawyers don't practice in the future, they practice in the present. And we need to address what they should do right now. And e-discovery is an issue that will continue to grow in importance, time, dollars, strategic uh, value in the short term. So lawyers that are making, looking to make themselves relevant will definitely benefit from e-discovery education. And while it's important to understand what the vendors and tools are capable of doing to maximize your legal practice, that awareness is, is something um, that is often overlooked. There's also a real present advantage to practicing lawyers with limited time hoping to maximize their relevance. Uh, but, but to me, the, the issue of becoming e-discovery competent is actually much bigger. It, it's, it's not about the skill set that's important. It's, it's the mindset. Becoming educated on tech, tech issues is about lawyers recognizing the importance of how technology will revolutionize how law is practiced, not in 30 years when they're retired, but in the next five to 10 years. And the sooner that lawyers that delegate technology uh, tasks, decisions, um, sooner than later, they're, they're going to look up and realize that the technologists are more capable of performing the tasks and decisions that make up much of their job. So lawyers might only need a baseline technology competence to remain capable of litigating the case today, but by continuing to be ignorant to the vastly rising tides of technology pervasiveness, they risk not being able to have enough skills to be capable of litigating case, litigating case tomorrow. So 
getting educated isn't about avoiding vendor fees. It's about having a job at all. Yeah, I agree. I, I've, I've actually been in a couple large companies recently that have described the services that I'm providing right now and, and said, well, the prices that we get from the vendors are always a lot less. You know, for some reason, always a lot less. And, uh, but that's, that's also a separate issue because they're not signing off on it. Um, so, you know, there's some, I think, some interesting topics to discuss there. Judge Carl, let me, go ahead. Carl, let me ask you a question. Should we convince lawyers that they need to learn more about e-discovery? And if that's so, what are we going to teach them? Is it suffice to simply say, well, are these new rule amend, uh, amendments, or how deep and pervasive must their education be? Yeah, my my view on on the uh, on the current way that we teach lawyers, uh, particularly in the CLE program, is this focus on uh, rules, and uh, uh, it's always about the often about the rules, and and very seldom about the blocking and tackling techniques. So, you know, I, I remember back I can say this now, back in 2006, and back when uh, Zubalik came out in 2005, you know, you, you go to these conferences and the entire thing was about how you've got to preserve data and what the process was because these are the rules and the case law. And we're going to see that again. We're already starting to see it going forward. There are going to be lots of discussions about proportionality, Rule 37E and sanctions, and um, which are important. Don't, don't get me wrong. But is a technology and how to use technology part of that discussion? No. Is developing workflow, intelligent workflow, and the pros and cons of sampling and sourcing, and you know, are, is that part of um, that discussion? No. And those are the areas where you can get the most bang for your buck on a project. And uh, most lawyers that get any exposure to e-discovery are going to just hear about rules. Um, so, so you know, I, I, I think there's some challenges with 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 how we educate lawyers. Um, unfortunately, you got to get it from real life experience. Um, but you know, so for you know, so so that's my view on education. I, I know Judge Facciola, you you've got some views as well. Um, do you have a sense of what the best way to educate lawyers is uh, and teach them the challenges of e-discovery? You know, can the law schools do a better job or the CLE programs like I talked about? Or should you just hire more more experts when you get in this situation? Well, uh, that's, you don't know what those experts are selling or you unless you have some understanding of the technology that they are using to help you. Uh, lawyers, like it or not, are really the last generalists in our society. And they have to know a lot of things about a lot of things. Now, their knowledge may not be as profound as yours and Peter's, but it has to be sufficient for them to understand the technological challenge that the problem presents. Accordingly, insofar as educational programs pretend that you don't have to understand that technology, they're not very useful because the premise on which they operate is a false one. Um, therefore, I think the best COE programs are that nice blend of understanding the technology and then looking at it from the perspective of a lawyer. All of them can be improved in that way. The same thing, of course, is true of the law school curriculum. There is a target you are you're trying to hit, a target in which the technology is sufficiently understood so that the legal issue emerges in the real-world context. All of us who are involved in education have to do that. We don't have any choice. 
So um, when we were talking about this a couple of days ago, you had talked to Chachiel a little bit about some of the the challenges that law schools are having with yeah. you know staying current. But, and yeah, well, law schools are in a complicated position because I think we'd all agree the vast majority of their students have not had any kind of technological training um, before they get to law school. Most of them are interested in law school from coming to the to the law school from various backgrounds, but. I would imagine backgrounds in political science, history, English, philosophy predominate. So the law schools are really starting with some pretty raw material that has not been honed in any way to uh, have a student body that is ready to understand the technology. So the law schools, therefore, have to integrate into their curriculums a way of conveying the technological basis of the issues that the law students are going to be confronted. And... It appears to me that you just can't do that with the courses that Peter and I teach. You can, you certainly have to do it in that way, but there has to be an integration into the rest of the curriculum as well. I'm going to teach evidence this fall and got a series of books from the law book publishers to see which one I was going to use. I was stupefied when I read them, and none of them, none of them, had any discussion of Rule 502. I correct myself, there was one, but the, the vast majority did not nor did any of them have sections dealing with the authentication of digital evidence. So we are always, it seems, with the law school curriculum at ground zero. And we have a lot of problems. We don't have a very technologically-minded student body. We probably don't have a very technologically-minded faculty. So we have to do something about that. And the something we have to do is create within the curriculum an exciting and interesting way to learn the technology. Peter, you you know one of the challenges we've talked about is, is in the law schools in particular is actually getting more schools even to recognize this is something that's that's worth teaching. You you've done this at a couple of organizations uh, to, to uh, universities. Well, do you have any recommendations on how to approach a uh, you know a, a university or a law school and convince them to add a course? Uh, I do. Uh, I mean, first of all, this it may be a fool's errand. Um, I'm not sure that I would attempt to do this again. Uh, part of me thinks that maybe um, that this that the future of legal education might not even be in law schools. So, I mean, that's something 15, 20 years down the line. But I think that the law schools may underestimate the, the severity of the threat that technology might represent and their failure to integrate it into the curriculum may um, May, may cause the downfall of, of not just a few law schools, but, but many. Um, there's an argument, I think, to be made uh, that it makes more sense to try to convince the legal software vendors to offer their salespeople courses on the law. And I know that sounds dramatic, and there's unauthorized practice of law issues inherent. Unauthorized in practice of education. <laughs> true, true, that as well. It's, it's a mess. Uh, but, but my point with that isn't that they would be the lawyers so much as I think that the technologists with legal training um, in, in the future may make better attorneys than lawyers with technology training. Uh, but, but don't get me wrong. Lawyers are by and large brilliant people, and I still have the hope that law schools can wake up and see the changes that are coming. Um, explaining the steps and calculating decisions involved in the process of getting a law school to teach a tech and law course like I have done definitely could be a podcast in itself. Um, law schools in the past simply don't listen to outsiders when it comes to their curriculum. 
um, with every non-T14 law school in the country falling somewhere between struggling and the brink of complete failure, the door of administrators is minutely cracked, at least, uh, for those people like like me who are determined to change legal education and, and have a voice in, in the trajectory of the future. Uh, from my experience, it takes a plan, conviction, and luck. You need to identify the dean with the most power over the curriculum that is objective about the need to evolve, and in the end with Drexel, where I'll be teaching, it was an open-minded dean that appreciates the importance of listening to out the, outside the box or countervailing opinions on the future of law schools. That's why the, my course is happening at all. He listened to someone who had no authority over him, and he deserves all the credit. So I guess in other words, the biggest hurdle one faces in, in getting a legal technology course on the curriculum is getting somebody who matters at the law school to listen to you in the first place. And as for the course itself, if it's e-discovery or another legal technology course, once you're in the door, there are plenty of people that can help you create the course. Uh, if you are teaching discovery, Bill Hamilton from Bryan University, University of Florida, he has put together a listserv uh, of professors from around the country that teach e-discovery and related legal technology courses uh, to be able to help each other out. It's been an incredible resource, uh, allowing for a lot of back and forth over the last four or five years since he put it together. And while e-discovery is still not offered at most law schools like it should be, there are some profs who've been teaching a while who will uh, share their experience with you. They were a great resource for me when I first started teaching e-discovery four years ago in an undergraduate program. So if, if you've gotten to uh, the point where you might have the ear of an administrator and you think that you might be able to get an e-discovery or legal technology course you know, onto the curriculum, reach out to, uh, to Bill Hamilton because he will be able to put you in, uh, in contact with everybody else who, for the second part of what you have to do in terms of creating the course itself. Uh, if I can ask you a question, Carl. Uh, sure. How do entrepreneurs get the word out about the new techniques that work so they truly can educate a larger group of uh, people about you know what works and what doesn't? Yeah, well, it's not easy. Like like everything we've talked about, you know, in education and CLE content uh, in law schools. So so how do how do you when you try something new tell people and uh, who are lawyers and uh, you know I think you go with. Um, your audience and what their concerns are. So I mentioned all the CLE courses seem to gravitate to the rules. Uh, find a rule, a rule that supports your innovation. And uh, that's one way to explain it to lawyers. So, you know, back when we were doing global aerospace and there was no case law, uh, forcing someone to accept the production of a tar or, or predict coding, we went to rule one. Is it just, speedy, and inexpensive? and crafted factual arguments uh, of what the alternative was. Uh, in review right now, I, I focus a lot more on Rule 26G, the certification of the completeness of the review, known as the reasonable inquiry, as well as Rule 1. And, you know, so, so crafting your, your, your pitch and your description around solving a problem for the lawyer in a rule is, is what, one of the things that I found that gets you more acceptance, because uh, you're speaking the same language. A second thing is, you know, lawyers are busy and lawyers also are risk averse, so they follow other lawyers. So the quicker you can get your clients on board who are lawyers, 
I mean, finding the first client is the hard thing, you know, when you're trying something new. But once you can do that, if you can get them on board, then it's not a sales pitch anymore. It's a colleague or a peer that has tried something new. And I got to tell you, it's very hard work. It's hand-to-hand combat, one-on-one discussions. You don't take over a law firm. You, you develop a relationship with a lawyer. And unfortunately, sometimes it takes having the current approaches fail and a desperate client you know, needs to t- you know, test you because they have no choice. And then you absolutely have to perform because you have a better mousetrap. Because if you don't, the same thing that can help you grow can hurt you. People will talk about the disaster you created. Um, I got to say, blasting emails out about how great you are and what, why your, your, your ideas are better, they don't work so well. And I, I, I humorously, whenever I've tried that, because I experiment, I see on LinkedIn companies that are offer similar services hitting my LinkedIn page. And, uh, you know, that's never the point if you're trying to promote a new idea. Getting these ideas into the legal community sometimes are not CLE ready because it's perceived too much like a self-interested sales pitch instead of a educational, you know, um, ready material. So uh, I've used local think tanks like the Friends of eDiscovery Group or, you know, talking to people who are thought leaders like uh, they're through involvement in the Sedona Conference as fertile grounds as an exchange of ideas because these are groups of people that understand e-discovery and they understand the challenges. So you're not starting from square one. You're, you're actually starting from here's the defect and here's how we're trying to fix it. You can have a better discussion. Um, but at the end of the day, lawyers are, are risk-averse. And I've got to say, risk reduction alone is not enough. In the last four years, you know, using some of these review approaches with technology or remote review, uh, never had anything other than complete 100% success. And, you know, in a space where everyone's clamoring for change, it's still a huge fight to get your way into organizations and and get to decision makers to talk about this. So, you know, I, I do think the fear of change is so strong in legal organizations that, lastly, if your model is capital intensive, you better have a lot of money because you're going to have to wait out a period of time before people gain acceptance. But those are sort of the things that, that I've seen that seem to work over time. It's just a lot of hard work. Peter, so, uh, from your perspective, what stops most lawyers from trying the new techniques that Carl has talked about? Well, I, th- I think that Carl may be a little bit too hard on himself in terms of you know his attempt to, to recultivate and, and, and reshape the message uh, in terms of what his products can do, and, and this is something that relates to the legal technology community in general. It, it's not, the problem isn't them. It's, it's, it's the buyers, not the sellers. The, the technology for the buy far is sound. Uh, the consultants, the experts, they know their stuff. The problem with getting lawyers to try new techniques is it's motivation. It's that simple. The law doesn't encourage creativity. It's likely to get you in trouble more than it is to get you rewarded. Um, and it's new techniques involve a significant amount of time, and lawyers are particularly technophobic. And until lawyers recognize, um, whether that's a financial recognition or it's an internal light going off, that both the threat and opportunity. I, I swear I am an optimist that technology represents. They'll just continue to think it isn't worth their time. Uh, but, but trust me, this, this is 
you know, I'm banging the drum here with you need to trust me that the legal technology community understands the power of these new techniques. And I fear that lawyers, if they don't learn these tools soon, the vendors will just cut out the middleman and, and sell many of these products to the clients directly. And I know the way our system is set up now that the lawyer, you know, maintains this position of control. And that's the way it always has been. They sign the paperwork, the law, you know, is all constructed for that setup. But I think we take for granted that that will continue to be the power dynamic in the future. If, if these tools and the products are too capable and the clients want them and the community wants them and the economy wants them, I think that we face a real threat. Um, and, and so that we, to that extent, we need to find a way to change the motivations of attorneys so that they understand um, not only the capabilities of technology today, but, but the threat it represents going forward. You know, putting aside the capital advantages that vendors sometimes have because they can raise money from, from people who aren't lawyers, um, there's a cultural difference that I wanted to touch on that um, business owners appreciate and lawyers uh, tend to not appreciate or they, they appreciate it in the wrong direction. And it's, it's the value of failing. This is honestly the best way to learn. But in, in law, it can result in losing a job. And, uh, you know, it's unfortunate. Uh, I remember I, I, I've joked with people before about uh, a summer associate at the first law firm I worked in, Alan, who uh, later on in his career became a partner at an Amlaw 20 law firm. But when he didn't get the uh, job offer and he left in the middle of a two-year mass tort, <laughs> everything that went wrong was, oh, Alan was touching that. And it was humorous because Alan must have been the busiest person in the firm as a summer associate, <laughs> um, you know, and, uh, you know, so I, I found it humorous. Um, but, but it's real because, you know, if you take risk in law, as you say, um, Peter, there's no reward um, if you succeed, uh, or at least not a perceived reward. But, you know, if you've studied, you know, uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I'll put it in terms of that, um, you know, creating new things and, and improving is such a, a powerful feeling than doing things exactly the same way just for safety reasons is, is, is demoralizing. And I, I, I'll just highlight one of my favorite situations practicing law. I was involved in a merger between two law firm, between two large organizations and I didn't know much about antitrust law. I had a, a form book, a horn book. We hired national counsel from D.C. come to help us. And everyone was looking at two locations that were within seven miles in a large transaction. And I, as a third-year associate, left the room and studied a wholesale market of distribution, which wasn't – and no one was talking about. And I joined an online think tank. I pulled down articles, and I wrote a 15-page, 1,000-attachment analysis of the competition in this field that we presented to the FTC. And I did it on my own. That was the highlight of my legal career right there. And, um, you know, I felt great. And the managing partner recognized me. Uh, that, that, was, that was fun. And those opportunities just never really came up very often. So, you know, there is definitely something cultural there. Um, so, so anyway, um, I mean, you, Judge Acciola, since you, you, you appear and talk to so many lawyers, do you get the sense that there's 
concern about trying new things uh, from your relationships or, or time on the bench? Yeah, I, I think you're the concern for those in two ways. The first thing is you've got to remember how, just how technophobic lawyers are. I mean, uh, a professor at Villanova with whom I was on a panel pointed out once that it was about 10 years before lawyers started using the telephone after they were invented. I always wondered if they took the elevator. Um, and so that's one of the problems. The second problem is, if you think about it for a second, if you don't know a lot about a topic and somebody shows up and says, well, I have this this technique and it will help you and it will cost you $10,000, you don't have the intellectual wherewithal to make the kind of judgment you want to be able to make about the validity of what that person is saying. So then, unfortunately, it's, it's, a, it's an endless circle. Uh, you don't have the confidence and there's no quick way for you to get it other than from the person you're talking to, who, after all, is trying to sell you something. <laughs> so it's it's not easy. And I think you have to have some sympathy for the lawyers who find themselves in this position. So I guess my dream client is me, and I have been my own client when I was special master. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you, yeah, you've probably also didn't complain about the bill, but, you know... Uh, uh, no, I marked. I, I I put this remote team together and I build them as paralegals. So I the price was actually a third less because I was concerned about the ethics. But I also knew that I couldn't find tested lawyers anywhere else. And in the market, I was special master. I knew from my research and testing that there was no the the talent pool. The cupboard was empty. So I knew to aim at other markets. But the 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 fear was as I got into it. It was it was a case that was in the Wall Street Journal was that we had to get through these 1.3 million records in two months to hit a trial deadline, and that trial deadline wasn't moving. And uh, mm-hmm. there were times when it looked like it wasn't going to happen. And it was very, very scary personally. And uh, But at the end of the day, I always had my alternative strategy in that, I, that I pushed to the client and said, do you want to do this? And it was going to cost over a million dollars. And they mm-hmm. did not want to do that. Everyone was willing, when I made the case, Here's what I can do with technology. Let's try it. Everyone wanted to try it. So it's a matter of setting the table up both ways. But as you say, Judge Facciale, you got to understand both sides to be able to do that, and that that is a challenge. Um, so, good good point. Um, so let's 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 come back to education here because you know there you know a lot of my best friends in the field have have been educating for a long long time, and I sometimes joke with them. Uh, that you know, you, you see them at the same events over and over. Do we have a uh, a monopoly on education here, or do we have a a challenge at, at that we don't have um, enough people that understand the space, new voices that can help continue to develop the field? And Judge Facciola, since you're the most seasoned person, you can probably talk to both sides of this. Well, obviously, you want new people with new insights, but by the same token, you have a group of very distinguished people who have been around for a while and have lived through this and have the insight of doing that. So if you are responsible for putting these programs together, I can assure you that the judicial roundtable is always the one that no one wants to miss and always gets the best reviews. Well, that roundtable, you know, unfortunately, or unfortunately, depending on your point of view, consists of the same old suspects, including me. So you want to integrate new people, but believe me, if you have one of those programs and you leave out a Shira Shinnaman or a Frank Moss or an Andy Peck, you're going to get some very nasty notes from people saying, hey, I didn't pay my money uh, to do that. By the same token, we every year make a purposeful attempt to bring new people in so we can uh, involve them 
and I think we have been somewhat successful in doing that. People like Paul Greenwald and Christy Nix, who have now been integrated. But it is a constant challenge. You're always trying to balance the desire of the audience to hear certain people and bringing in new people they have not heard. But I don't think this is in any way impeding education. Uh, you know, the Shira Shinlins and the Frank Mosses and the Andy Pecks, they have a lot to say. And to disinvite them simply because they've been there before is awfully silly. By the same token, you have to you have to look to the future and bring in new people. It's a constant challenge. There's no easy answer. I just yeah, if I could jump in there, I I think that's a great point, especially the idea regarding the what the audience wants to hear. The, the CLA programs live and die depending on who's coming, and you know Judge Fasciola raises a great point that there's a real demand to hear, you know, from the judiciary, and and so the the, the problem isn't that it's the same people, you know, with the same message so much as the people who are trying to buy the message have a limited interest in terms of who they're trying to hear from. So it's, it's again, we have a buyer problem, not a seller problem. Yeah, and I, I you know, over time, you know, because I've, I've gone to some of the uh, the events that, that um, we've, we've referenced and my friends are all talking at, and, and there were times when I really wanted to speak at these events, and then I realized we need to grow the pool of speaking, you know, venues. So that's one reason for ESI Bytes, um, Friends of eDiscover. I mean, if you, if you have a, a, a passion, you don't have to wait to speak at one or two events. Uh, you know, there's only going to be a certain number of people at Legal Tech or Georgetown or any of the, the main events that everyone seems to want to go to. But you can start your own groups uh, more localized and have, it's, at times, even a bigger impact. Um, I even took it to the next level and did a nine-city tour on predictive coding, and I can tell you now I understand more than ever the challenges of do you do you put a lot of time in and charge it inexpensively than what happens when only 19 people show up in Philadelphia, which happened, um, versus the hundred in New York. You know, it's 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 pretty complicated. It's a, it is a little business running a CLE program. So um, anyway, um, well. We've touched on a lot of points here, which I, th I think has been great. And I think with the, the central thesis is that we still need to do a lot more in terms of education. So, Judge Facciola, um, what, what's the role you think of common law in guiding us on how lawyers will eventually improve in this pace? Well, there had to be a time when the, the first train hit the first cow, and some lawyers said, "Oh gosh, what do we do now?" And someone said, "Well, the cow's a chow." If you're negligent, you damage someone else's chattel, that gives you an action in common law. The law has, the common law has been ridiculously capacious in uh, being, permitting a society to regulate uh, the affairs between human beings upon the arrival of new technology. So that is not to say, however, that we don't need uh, aggressive legislative action in some problems that, that the common law uh, may not be able to get to for a while because nobody's brought that issue before a court certainly in the areas of privacy and cybersecurity and all. We need uh, an aggressive legislative balancing of all the values that are at issue there. That's very hard for courts to do that abstractly, but it's what legislatures do. So, for example, in my home state of Virginia, uh, recently the legislature looked to the question of how long the police should be able to hold on to license plate data after they have achieved it for a particular purpose, and they came up with a rule. They're a very interesting uh, 
developments in the legislative efforts in terms of cybersecurity in California and other places. So there is that tender balance of the courts doing what they can do, but they have to do it in the context of actual cases and controversies that come before them. Uh, legislatures are not so restrained, and I think it's for them to to get going and to begin the debate that we all have to have about where this technology is taking us in terms of privacy and other issues that are so important to us as a society. Yeah, and I, I've taken great comfort in, in that, and I'm glad we've recorded this. You've said this a couple times to me in private, uh, you know, about the pace of change and not to, not to be concerned it's not happening overnight. Um, you know, I, I uh, you know, Peter mentioned, you know, that I was too hard on myself. I, I, I wanted to sort of correct that. I, I accept the pace of change. I don't, I don't fight it. Um, I, I used to, but not anymore, uh, simply because uh, to me it's, it's intellectually stimulating to try to improve things. And secondly, I also now have a better awareness that what's being done, while I see ways to improve it, does get the job done. Cases are being litigated, you know, so you can't be too hard on the current process. If it was completely broken, the world would be up in arms, and they're not. So, you know, you just have to be comfortable that over time, new ideas do eventually emerge and and it's a fun process being in that space personally so i don't want to i don't want to since we're in a, doing mentoring here and and part of the audience is new lawyers and people that want to affect change i don't want to be negative here at all or or just persuade people from from following that path it's it's a wonderfully fulfilling path um even though it is hard so you know i wanted to add that point there so each of us I do have future plans with helping with education in, in uh, e-discovery and in general. So why don't I go around the room, starting with Peter and then Judge Facciola, what your plans are to help continue educating in, in e-discovery? Uh, well, sure. I, go ahead, Peter. Do you want to start Judge Facciola first? Well, the protocol, since Judge Facciola is helping me with these shows, was, I, I couldn't decide. Does Judge go first or does Guest go first? And I've oh, I made a gut call Guest. Guest is my home. You always get certain. You know, a, a wonderful <laughs> thing to do. Or, 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 but that was a good question, Peter. Thank you for asking yeah. me why, why I did that. <laughs> remember the Hindu proverb, serve your guests before you serve yourself. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, well, Carl, first of all, just to follow up on your point, counter to my point um, about you being too hard on yourself, I think that the progress of law, you know, has been something that that's kind of had its own tempo for a long time, and you know, for for good reason. But what I'm my my kind of overriding point is, I think that because the progress of some of these tools and capabilities on the outside is so great and so rapid and big data and all its implications, it will advance too much and too fast and be too capable. And so I do, you know, my, my kind of bigger point is that even if the law evolves and good ideas become involved, we face this, this kind of outside threat that, there will be a way to do things that is just so much better that there's going to be some sort of a damn that breaks in terms of, you know, who is practicing the law. And I know that's a very complicated long-term issue, 
But but my perspective is that it's not a long-term issue. It's a, it's an 8, 10, 12, 15-year uh, issue that will be um, kind of overwhelming uh, the practice of the law in the future. But um, So that's that's what I was indicating when I said that you know, you need to be you're too hard on yourself because it's it's the buyers that are the problem, not the sellers. But we need to keep in mind this this, this outside force that is kind of bearing down on us if, if we don't turn around. But um for my future future plans, um I'm all about being informed, innovative, and influential. So short term I'm most focused on making this course work with Drexel. Obviously I'm very passionate about legal technology and the dozens of ways it can make lawyers better attorneys, both today and tomorrow. Uh, my consulting company, E3, as you mentioned, is is based on this belief. In fact, I don't even accept referral fees. I'm so concerned with simply spreading the word of technology. I, you know, I'm shouting from the rooftops. Look at look at what these things can do. Um, I, I'm also on the team of authors creating a handbook resource for law students and lawyers alike who want to understand better the technical tech and law intersection and how that applies to their, their practice. But as as passionate as I am about legal technology, this is kind of my final point here, I'm equally passionate about legal education. Not simply the courses that are taught, but the methodologies that are used. I remember being a law student, student and getting an 80-page casebook reading assignment and sitting through the hours of other students while we were in class. Wrestle was you know, some tangent of and, and, and on some irrelevant issue and just being like, how the heck is law school taught this way? And I know that it's tradition-based and there are its reasons, but I, as somebody who's always appreciated, you know, progression and data and looking at how can we do things better, not how do I think things can be better, what does the data say regarding how things can be better, um, I appreciate the fact that law schools now have some flexibility, um, especially with elective courses like mine regarding instituting teaching tactics that will put student learning above tradition. And in the short term, I'm really dedicating much of my time to creating an optimal learning experience for those students who are going to be taking my course. So uh, not only is the content important to me, I'm spending a great deal of time really diving into some uh, some progressive um, supported strategies, uh, whether it's video or multimedia uh, or graphics or repetitive um, points, wh whatever it might be regarding how to create an optical course. So this is, this is really something that I'm focusing on. I, feel it's a, I, I owe it to the students to create something special this fall, and uh, content and delivery are, are both my focus right now. Great. Judge Fatiola? Very similarly, I'm working uh, in the area, uh, in those areas, meeting on Monday morning with computer science people to improve graphic and visual capabilities as I teach, whether I teach in the traditional classroom or in distance learning. Uh, I, too, am working with Peter on that book he mentioned, which we are trying to figure out the best way to convey a message about the intersection of technology and law. I will be teaching evidence, uh, interestingly enough, to students in the LLM program, who are usually already lawyers in other countries. And I will be integrating some thoughts about digital evidence, uh, authenticity, hearsay, as it confronts digital evidence into that course. 
uh, and then ultimately, I, I suppose I will keep my traditional CLE work, but um, I'm taking on more uh, complicated educational opportunities in the context of a law school. So I'll have to find the balance between those two things as I go along. But certainly in my retirement years, which were supposed to be <laughs> retirement, I've gotten very, very busy. And it's almost, uh, it, it's, I'm special master in a couple of cases, but still education is, is where my life seems to be going. The dream retirement, I, I admire you. Um, but uh, <laughs> new definition. Um, so, so my plans um, in this space uh, were to, continue pushing, you know, giving more time back to ESI Bytes with uh, Judge Bacciola's help. Um, and uh, it's funny, we have, a, I think, in two months, a guest uh, coming in who's going to talk about some of the changes in data, who's a partner at a law firm, and how tools relate to it, and some of the concerns that you have, Peter. Um, uh, I, I, so, so having people like that and covering topics at the forefront of entrepreneurship and making change in ESI Bytes, um, I gave up uh, running the Pittsburgh chapter, Friends of eDiscovery, because I just didn't have the time. But but I put it over uh, to Dave Cohen at Reed Smith, who's uh, very capable and probably more capable than me to run that group. But I'm I'm happy because I did that for five years, helping nationally. If any city wants to start one of these, I think they're fantastic ways to instill a local market sense of uh, of, of e-discovery uh, that you can't necessarily get at the national events because you don't get the repeat time with the, the national experts. But your neighbors, you, you, you do because they're neighbors. Um, but most of my time and energy will be focused still on entrepreneurship and being evangelical about, you know, the fact we have so many lawyers in the country, you should never have a bad reviewer, ever, because they're all over the country. So why not look to the best people you can find? And, uh, so, you know, I have plenty to do, and, and uh, I'm very happy doing all of these. Um, I, I do want to thank everyone here on the show, and, and I do want to also put a shout-out. If anyone has a question or, or a topic that they find interesting in this sort of uh, space of improving e-discovery, uh, you know, uh, either issues or stories or being a participant, reach out to me. Send me an email at kas at reviewless.com and, 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 you know, happy to talk to listeners about their, their reaction to this format. Uh, but I want to thank Peter for McCann for joining us today in our discussion and, of course, to Judge Pacciola for keeping me interested and focused on ESI Bytes with this new format. And uh, I'd also like to thank our sponsor, uh, Jurnom, for their continued support of ESI Bytes. To the listeners, if you've enjoyed the podcast, I'd encourage you to go to www.esibytes.com with a Y for a complete list of our show. And as we always say at ESI Bytes, come here to learn more about eDiscovery before ESI bites you back. This is Carl Shineman, President and Founder of ReviewLess, wishing you a nice day. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family vgw group no purchase necessary void where prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus